The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 10, White House Call Girl. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm your narrator, John O'Connor, author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, covered up Watergate, and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. As we've explained in previous episodes, the conventional view of Watergate has little place for the facts we have shown, and there has been no attempt to explain any of them as part of a consistent narrative whole. That glaring lack causes any critical mind focusing on the mysteries of Watergate to question that conventional narrative. It is the narrative, in short, that was put forth by the Washington Post. We have thus far put together pieces of evidence which, when assembled, make for a satisfying, seemingly fact-based story. But the evidence we have thus far put forth of our narrative still admittedly requires some inference from circumstantial evidence. To explain, circumstantial evidence is considered just as valid as direct evidence under the law, to be weighed under all the facts and circumstances present. A criminal defendant, for example, may testify that he did not shoot the victim, which is classic direct evidence. In that situation, circumstantial evidence, his fingerprints on the weapon, purchase of the weapon by him, his threats to the victim, and witness testimony that the victim and the defendant were seen together arguing shortly before the shooting, would appear far stronger than the direct evidence of his denial. So circumstantial evidence is often much stronger than direct evidence and must be adjudged with reference to the particular situation. The circumstantial evidence we have shown in the first nine episodes is a sufficient basis for a jury of public opinion to find in favor of our interpretation, specifically that Watergate was at its core a covert operation surveilling illicit sexual activity for intelligence, not campaign purposes. But of course, the more we can fill in the gaps with evidence closer to the fact to be inferred, the more credible would be our solution to the mysteries under our microscope. What do we have so far? And where should we look further to buttress this evidence? We know of Mullen's cover contract and our conclusion that Hunt was likely an undercover agent. The agency, as we have shown, desperately needed arguable presidential authorization for domestic operations that otherwise were illegal. The CIA, the evidence shows, no longer could use the FBI for surreptitious entry or wiretap. So, as in the fielding burglary we can infer a program whereby Hunt and Mullen inveigled White House approval for a venture which ostensibly would help the White House, but which really was a CIA operation, and where the fruits would be curated for the CIA's sole benefit. We have presented evidence that the CIA had traditionally shown interest in the taping of prostitutes and their johns, and as well, based on the tawdry talk monitored in Watergate, Prostitution may have been the subject of the operation sought to be legitimized with seeming White House cooperation. But what about our evidence that someone in the White House would be interested in the same subject, such that Hunt could draw out such approval? We have presented clear admissions by Dean of his ambitious desire for his own intelligence operation, and Liddy's recruitment by Dean with the lure of a well-funded intelligence program. Significantly, we've also shown an attraction by Dean to prostitution dirt on Democrats. Finally, we put forth Tony Ulasewicz's casing of the DNC offices in the late fall of 1971, just as Dean was recruiting Liddy to go to the CRP with promises of funding and an intelligence operation. 
From all of this, we may infer Dean's interest in and knowledge of a hooker referral pipeline into the DNC. All of this is well and good, but wouldn't it be far more convincing if we could show, in fact, a prostitute referral practice within the DNC was in place, and that the CIA was already monitoring that same call girl business? After all, if the CIA did not have any interest in the escort services, our theory would lack any realistic agency motive. If that matter were left here without such proof, we would still have a case, but one subject to principled argument and opposition. Fortunately, we have the benefit of brilliant pieces of research aiding us immeasurably, dug up by authors Len Colodney and Phil Stanford, who have been, to no one's surprise, exoriated by those invested in the post-conventional narrative of conservative Nixonian venality. Let us start with the unidentified lush blonde called Tess by Jim Hogan, who describes her as a running a call girl operation out of the Columbia Plaza Apartments on Virginia Avenue, just blocks from the Watergate office building. But what about evidence that someone in the White House would be interested in the same subject such that Hunt could draw out such approval? We have presented clear admissions by Dean of his ambitious desire for his own intelligence operation and Liddy's recruitment of Dean with the lure of a well-funded intelligence program. But let us return to the lush blonde called Tess by Jim Hogan. Who exactly was this Tess, who Hogan claims had a referral program with the DNC? The madam ran her operation under the name Kathy Dieter, we learned from Led Kolodny, a beautiful blonde of German birth. According to Kolodny's research, Kathy Dieter was one and the same as Heidi Riken, also a girlfriend of D.C. underworld gambling boss Joe Nesline. According to Kolodny, Riken had been a stripper at the Blue Mirror Lounge in D.C., leaving the district under heat from the vice squad. After spending some time in South Lake Tahoe, which has four major casinos and plenty of high-priced prostitutes, Heidi returned by automobile to D.C. and began her call girl business. For reasons we will explain, the identity of Riken with Dieter will be important in stitching together the evidence, and for that reason, her identity has been ignored by those wishing to ignore solid proof of our revisionist narrative. Author Phil Stanford located Riken's sister, and to our point, also a former maid of Riken, who related Riken's admission during her old age, quote, I was a White House call girl, unquote. This statement is important because it corroborates a statement by lawyer Philip Bailey to Len Colodney, identifying Riken as one and the same person as Kathy Dieter, who ran the Columbia Plaza service. Both Stanford and Colodney offer extensive evidence that Kathy slash Heidi ran the Columbia Plaza operation, and Stanford documents, via her lawyer, Philip Bailey, that the ring had been taping prostitutes while under the protection of the CIA. The operation's bouncer, according to Bailey, was a burly man called Russ, a former minor league ball player. It is in this escort service that the needs of the CIA, Hunt, and Dean all appear to merge. Oh yes, and the DNC as well. As we conclude this episode, we will return to the Watergate burglaries and tie them together with this evidence to help us solve the unsolved mysteries of Watergate. We should not conclude our discussion of this prostitute referral program without talking a bit about its origins. A key player in the referral program is one Philip Mackin Bailey, a young, fun-loving, to an extreme, D.C. lawyer a short, handsome, sturdily built man with the proverbial map of Ireland displayed on his smiling, blue-eyed face. Bailey was voted by his Catholic University Law School classmates most likely to be disbarred. 
The tag proved prophetic. Bailey had displayed an uncanny ability to convince young women to have sex with him in the wild late 1960s and early 70s, an embodiment of let the good times roll. Appropriately, it seemed, his fledgling law practice numbered among its clients a fair number of prostitutes. Bailey had a wide circle of acquaintances and often boasted about his numerous Democratic Party contacts. One of his clients, who is considered a girlfriend, at least by Bailey, was the aforementioned lush blonde, of which Jim Hogan speaks, who Bailey knew by the name of Kathy Dieter, whose Columbia Plaza call girl operation was not far from the Watergate office building. The Watergate area was a hooker haven because of the many high rollers either living or working in or visiting the area. The Watergate Lounge in the Watergate office building was especially notorious for attractive, high-priced talent. Kathy let Bailey know that she was looking for a good referral source, and at one point asked him pointedly if he had any contacts in the DNC offices down the street, known to have a constant stream of well-heeled visitors. Perhaps, she offered, Bailey could set up a referral program with the DNC. Bailey, who prided himself in his connections with both Democrats and women, allowed us how he might enlist a girlfriend at the DNC to assist. Let us pause right here. There's no doubt that Kathy's request made business sense. Every professional needs referral sources, after all. But we should here add another detail which Bailey soon learned. Kathy was being protected by the CIA, a very good way to avoid arrest and harassment by the law enforcement officials. So as far as we know today, Kathy's request of Bailey was motivated, as Adam Smith would approve, by profit. But from our remove, as we study the odd details of Watergate, there would have been a strong motive for her benefactor, the CIA, to push her to develop such a referral program with the DNC. So in short, we don't know if the CIA was behind her request or not. It certainly would have been consistent with the agency's motives. In fact, Bailey did have a girlfriend at the DNC who he called Champagne, the predecessor to Maxie Wells, as an employee of the DNC. Champagne set up a referral program. According to Bailey's later interviews with Colodny, an out-of-town visitor to the DNC would be asked if he was looking for female companionship. And if he was, he would be directed to a usually empty office in Spencer Oliver's suite. Oliver was out of town often, but also kept an empty office for visitors and had the only private phone system in the DNC office. His group, the Association of Democratic State Chairmen, was not formally part of the DNC and owned their own phone system. So its calls did not go through the DNC switchboard. A visitor to his office using an Oliver phone would have privacy. No one could listen in, at least not through the switchboard. The visitor was instructed to call a particular number, let it ring twice, whereupon he would wait for a call back. When he received the call back, a young woman would be on the line and he would be supplied by Champagne or perhaps later Maxie with her picture and he could then begin a discussion of plans. So this arrangement would explain the target of the eavesdropping, which the team had been carrying out for two weeks, as monitored by Baldwin, prior to the arrests. Now let us tie this arrangement to our narrative with some further details. Bailey had occasion to visit the apartment where Kathy's operation was, where, as we related, he met a burly man by the name of Russ seemingly the muscle or security for the operation. 
Bailey was given a drink and, in the absence of Kathy, wandered about the apartment looking for a bathroom. He opened a door, only to find a man with recording equipment and headphones monitoring something, presumably activities in the adjoining bedroom. The startled monitor did not take kindly to Bailey's intervention and sternly told him to return whence he came and, quite ominously, to forget what he observed. A chase and Bailey readily agreed and retreated. Obviously, the observations of Bailey, chronicled by both Culloden and Stanford, in fact constitute direct evidence of our narrative. Before we leave Bailey, let us foreshadow subsequent events. Bailey was later arrested on a morals charge not directly related to either Watergate or Kathy, but his knowledge of the arrangements we have described was threatening to someone. Somewhat out of the blue, the court hearing his morals case, a crony, it seems, of the corrupt Maryland political system, which gave us Nixon's Vice President Spiro Agnew, that's Judge Charles Ritchie, quickly shuttled Bailey off to a mental hospital, rather than publicize anything Bailey knew, an assignment which occurred shortly after the Watergate arrests. Prosecutors had not asked for that assignment, and certainly Bailey's lawyers did not. Obviously, someone wanted Bailey to remain quiet and to stay out of the picture. Later, in John Dean's litigation against Colodney, and later in Maxie Wells' case against Liddy, Bailey was often dismissed as insane. We take serious issue with this claim, and from this remove the assertion, as Bailey would agree, was preposterous. But in defending their position on Watergate, Dean, Oliver, Wells, and the Post all retreat to Bailey's alleged insanity, in our view a fig leaf, in order to overcome his clear observations of the call girl business run by Kathy and protected by Russ, where taping of the prostitution was being carried out. This evidence now explains why Dean, in October 1971, had Ulasewicz case the DNC. Bailey's later arrest and indictment, as we have noted, stemming from his preopistic tendencies, would ultimately cause Dean to order a second break into the DNC and literally change world history. We'll talk more about this later. Let's now add a few tidbits, touching on our discussion of sex, lies, and Watergate in our episode White House Call Girl. One of the two arresting officers on June 17, 1972, was Carl Schoffler working in plain clothes. June 17 was his birthday, and his family had already traveled to the Schoffler family home in Pennsylvania for the June 17 celebration. Schoffler, because of an injury, had been recently assigned to a desk job. Yet he chose the night of the burglary to pull overtime into the early morning, and in plain clothes and in an unmarked car, far from a desk job. He answered the call from the dispatcher about the burglary, arriving in minutes well before any other unit could arrive. He was parked a block from the Watergate office building. Who was Carl Schaffler? Intriguingly, Schaffler was so close to D.C. Police Chief Roy Blick that he was known as Little Blick. Mainly, it was said, for Schaffler's interest in Blick's files. What is the significance of Blick and his files? Blick, in short, was obsessed, much like the CIA's General Gaynor, with the intelligence aspects of illicit sex. 
the assumption to be inferred is that sex is a common tool of leverage, blackmail, and in our nation's capital, compromise of national security. Blick was so obsessed with sex that he maintained in his office what he called his, quote, sex museum, unquote, of which he was quite proud, containing the accoutrements of wildly varied sexual perversion, whips and chains being the most conventional. Blick was quite proud of his, quote, fucking machine, unquote, which he proudly showed to office visitors. We assure you we are not making this up. In light of the foregoing, we must ask whether little Blick Schoffler, who was rumored also to have been friendly with Alfred Baldwin, the wiretap monitor, aware of the wiretapping in advance. To be sure, there have been years of speculation connecting Schoffler to advanced knowledge of the break-in on the conspiracy theory that the operation was intentionally blown. There is some inference and opinion leading to that conclusion. And I would, for the sake of interest, love to confirm such a mysterious conspiracy, but alas, I cannot. The best source for fascinating intrigue in this regard is Jim Hogan's secret agenda. It is of far more concrete evidentiary interest that in making the arrests, Schaffler noticed one burglar reaching into a suit pocket to grab something, at which point he and Schaffler had a fierce wrestling match. We note here parenthetically that Schaffler observed a Raleigh's tag on the lining of the burglar suit, which the Post reported. But the Post did not report the wrestling match or the item sought in that breast pocket. Why wasn't at least the wrestling match reported? The item in the burglar's pocket we will discuss in a future episode. Is there any other connection of Schaffler and Blick to Watergate? For one thing, one of the chief intelligence officers in D.C. with whom Blick and Schaffler worked was one Gary Bittenbender. One of Bittenbender's jobs was to act as a liaison with the CIA. There he closely worked with one James McCord, who became his good friend. Let us here throw in another curiosity. From 1969 through 1971, the entire military establishment, especially its intelligence agencies, had been desperately seeking intelligence, or actually spying, on the White House, hoping especially to learn of foreign policy gambits of President Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. The military suspected these two of being way too friendly with communist regimes. Nixon, it will surprise many, had very strong critics on the right. One spy ring run by the Navy was exposed in late 1971, where documents were actually pilfered from Henry Kissinger and sent to the Navy. President Nixon decided to keep this scandal quiet. It was known as the Moorer, named after an Admiral Moorer, the Moorer-Radford affair, Radford being the yeoman who stole the documents. The spy affair is brilliantly covered by Len Kolodny and Silent Coup, which Kolodny seeks to hook up to Bob Woodward and Watergate, along with General Alexander Haig. For detailed discussion of that, I would recommend reference to Silent Coup. Let us now delve into another curiosity. The White House taping system was publicly announced in Watergate Committee testimony in June 1973 by White House aide Colonel Alexander Butterfield. 
Butterfield, in our view, was likely one more intelligence agency plant within the White House. To be sure, none of our narrative depends upon Butterfield's status, but there are interesting observations to make from it. It is unclear whether the Senate Watergate Committee was tipped off about Butterfield's knowledge of the taping system. It has always seemed odd to me that this obscure White House aide would be called to testify so early in the Irvin hearings, at a time when the CIA was desperate to pin the whole affair on the White House and avoid any exposure of its own role. Butterfield, movie star Handsome, was on his way without question to general stars within a short time frame when he joined the White House after writing his college friend, Nixon Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman, asking for a job. His job was obscure and backroom, yet to take it he was required to resign his commission. The White House did not require such resignation. For instance, General Alexander Haig not only served in the White House in uniform, but got promoted. Resigning of his commission suggests an interagency protocol where in spying for one agency, such as the CIA, would forbid working for a rival, uh, to wit, Air Force intelligence. The point here is that placing himself in a position to listen to all Oval Office conversations would be of incalculable value to anyone wishing to spy on Nixon's inner circle. In any case, within one week, Dorothy Hunt's plane crash, Butterfield resigned his White House post to head the FAA, which was investigating that plane crash. While we are discussing the taping system, Perhaps here is the place in which we might clear up one minor mystery of Watergate. You will hear this only on my podcast and read this only in my book, Postgate. I have interviewed two very solid sources to explain why Richard Nixon did not burn the Oval Office tapes earlier and avoid presenting proof of his criminal liability. In essence, Richard Nixon preserved the tapes because he was hopeful of never again paying a cent in income tax for the rest of his life. Let me explain. We all know that charitable contributions constitute a deduction from one's taxes. If you make $50,000 and give a $1,000 contribution to charity, you pay taxes only on income of $49,000. I think we all know that. But if, say, Picasso had contributed a painting worth $5 million to a charity, he could only have deducted the cost of the paint, brushes, canvas, etc., The Constitution gives the president ownership of his, quote, presidential papers, unquote. Tape is considered a presidential record and thus part of presidential papers. I do not pretend to follow the tax logic, but apparently this constitutional provision would allow a president to deduct the full market value of the papers. So Richard Nixon clearly did not want to burn his tapes early on, even though he knew that they might contain compromising White House conversations. By the time he was forced to produce the tapes, however, no lawyer who wished to keep his bar card would advise the president to destroy those tapes. Indeed, at a certain point, burning the tapes might be an impeachable act. But many have questioned Nixon's steadfast refusal early on to burn the tapes, and this is the best explanation. We have discussed before the agency's adamant opposition to the second burglary, as expressed by Howard Hunt. We know from a public statement from legendary Nixon advance man Ron Roadrunner Walker that many young Nixon administration aides frequented the same Columbia Plaza operation run by Kathy slash Heidi. 
with all the documents that the burglars were supposed to copy in that second burglary, was the agency afraid that such documents would reveal information showing that the agency was in fact also spying on White House aides? Perhaps the most obvious concern of the CIA was to protect the Columbia Plaza operation from any detection at all, whether or not any Nixonite would be outed in the materials. At the very least, the CIA would wish the White House not to learn that this call girl operation might be protected by the CIA. And in general, the CIA wished to keep all the fruits of its operation sequestered from the White House. As we leave White House call girl, we hope we have presented to you some information heretofore not widely known in an effort to solve yet another mystery of Watergate. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on this same subject entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.